It was at the turn of the century, that uh, 20th century, that Lyman Frank Baum, better known as L. Frank Baum, wrote his classic children's story, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which was, of course, later made famous by Judy Garland, MGM Studios' 1939 film adaptation. Maybe you've seen this. I'm trusting most of you have. If you know that story, you've seen the film, you're probably familiar with that scene in the film where Dorothy and her traveling companions finally make it to the Emerald City, and they're going to meet Oz, and, the, and they come before him. When they first meet him, he's this, basically this giant floating head, just there, right in the middle of this room. I mean, there's this loud, booming voice, these imposing emerald columns, flashes of fire coming up every time he speaks. It's crazy. This totally intimidating scene which leaves everyone from Dorothy to the Tin Man shaking in their boots, falling all over themselves. But if you remember, they're given a task to do, and when they come back to see the wizard the next time, as they're talking to him, Dorothy's little dog, Toto, runs off to the side of the room, and he pulls back a green curtain, revealing that this great and powerful Oz is really simply just an old man standing there with a loudspeaker and an impressive effects board. Uh, what they thought was this incredible, massive, powerful display was actually, when you pulled back the curtain, was just the opposite, actually. Well, we're continuing in this series we began a few weeks ago now, entitled, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him, looking at well-known Christmas carols. And talking about how the same truths that we sing about are reflected in the Bible. The goal of this series throughout, we've said, is to prepare our hearts well for the celebration of Christmas. To, to help us appreciate the deep theology, actually, we sing in these carols. And then, ultimately, we've said the point of this series is that we would come to adore Jesus. Either for the first time, or simply more than we already do. And the carol that we're looking at this morning, which we already sang this morning, one of my all-time favorites, honestly, Joy to the World. It's uh, number 125 in that green book in front of you, if you want to have that open as well and look at those words. If you've never slowed down and just considered the language of this carol, it, the, the lyrics themselves, they're quite profound. In Genesis 1, if you've ever read that first book of the Bible, you might remember that when God is creating the worlds, he, he uses this particular language when he's calling things into existence. He's calling light to be. He's calling uh, the separation of the heavens and the earth, sea and dry ground. What does he say? Let there be this. Let this happen. Let that happen. And then those things obey his creative command. Well, Looking at the first verse of this carol, you see it speaks about it is joy, joy to the world coming when, when God enters into human history. But then it calls us with that same imperative language. Let us. Let it happen. Let us. It's commanding us, really, to receive him as our king, to prepare room in our hearts for him and for all of nature and earth to, pro to, to prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Secondly, if you look at the third verse, it's even more majestic, more powerful in its scope, stating how Jesus rules the earth with truth and grace, and he makes the nations to prove. Literally, you could say he's, he's forcing them to prove these things, the glories 
of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. It's an incredible picture in this simple carol of power and size that honestly makes the great and powerful laws look about as intimidating as a preschooler dressed as a scarecrow. It just, they don't compare. And yet, when the shepherds from Bethlehem travel to visit Jesus, when the wise men from the east, when they complete their journey to stand before this king, entirely opposite to what you'd expect, and the complete reverse of the Wizard of Oz, they find this great and powerful king in the most simple, the most unassuming, the most humble of locations, a stable. And in the least intimidating form you could possibly come in, a baby. I mean, a baby, the only thing less intimidating Jesus could have come at was like a butterfly. It's a baby. There's nothing intimidating about that except for the thought of raising one. Now, there are clearly signs given that that's identify this baby. He is the king. Remember, the, the angel says you're going to find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Very specific. Uh, uh, the, the wise men are following this specific star that rests above the place where Jesus is. So there are clear signs that say this baby is the king. And yet, aesthetically, if you just look at it, there's nothing that would make you think so. It's actually a, a, a hidden glory, if you could say. And if you were here for the first Sunday of our series and we talked about how Jesus is that, he is this God in all his fullness, hidden or veiled in human flesh, as that hymn, Hark the Herald Angel Sing, says. Which is just to say, yes, Jesus and the wizard may both be hidden behind curtains of one type or another, but where the wizard is hiding weakness, Jesus is hiding deity. And... In just the same way, in our passage this morning, we read here Matthew 21, classically referred to it as Jesus' triumphal entry. Here you have this same Jesus, the Lord and King over the nations, riding into Jerusalem as the King. And yet, exactly opposite to what you'd think in the complete reverse of how the wizard tries to present his power, he doesn't come in uh, riding on this powerful stallion or in a big pimped out chariot, he doesn't, because there's no smoke or pyrotechnics going on, I mean, he doesn't even put on his best robe, get his hair and makeup done, nothing. He comes in as is, riding humbly on the colt of a donkey. I mean, it doesn't make sense to us. Now, once again, there's clear signs given that point to him, he truly is the coming king, and yet once again, there's nothing aesthetically, if you were to watch it happening, that would make you say, yeah, yeah, there's the king. Nothing. My point is this. Both of these comings of Jesus, despite their simple, seemingly unfitting characteristics, were both triumphal entries. And they were both intended to bring joy to the world. Because you see, the message of Christmas is... Jesus coming to earth is part of God's eternal plan to redeem the world, to, to save us. Which means, listen, when Jesus comes to earth, he isn't coming on some kind of divine sightseeing tour of his creation. He's come with a purpose. Advent, incarnation, what, what we celebrate at Christmas, that's the initiation of that purpose. And then this donkey ride into Jerusalem initiates its closing stages. Jesus, our 
has come. His hour that he spoke about has now come when he will bring this joy to the world. And today, that very same joy is available to us, available to you and to me. As the carol says, it's available to all who will prepare room in our hearts for him, who will receive him as our king. And yet, when you think about that first coming of Jesus, we read this in the beginning of John's gospel. He says, he was in the world, this is Jesus, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So you have Jesus coming here, and you've got these two responses to his coming, kind of juxtaposed beside each other. And it's, it's, it's each, in each sense, you're trying to understand why the different responses. And I think if you think about today, when we hear about Jesus, we have these exact same responses. You see a rejection of Jesus as the king and a receiving of him. You see both. What I'm saying is that's exactly what Jesus' coming is intended to provoke, intended to elicit some kind of a response. That's its intent. He wants to cause us to respond somehow. With the hope that every one of us here this morning might see Jesus as the king, that our response to him might be to prepare room in our hearts, to receive him as our king. I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. I want to show you Jesus' royalty revealed, and then the signs of royalty. Just those two things. Royalty revealed, signs of royalty. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage in Matthew 21? Follow along with me as we look at receiving the king. So let's talk first of all about royalty revealed. Royalty revealed. Now already, I'm going to be digging into the second point a little bit because we're going to talk about one of the key signs of Jesus' royalty. But, but I think in doing this, it's necessary because it's going to help set us up then for when we talk about those signs to understand them better, to, to realize what their significance is as they reveal Jesus' divine royal nature. And those of you who have been here for any length of time and have heard me talk will, will know, probably be able to guess, that uh, I'm going to tell us that the way we understand a particular verse or a chapter is by looking at it in its surrounding context. The context is going to help us to understand particularly what's happening in this verse or in these chapters. And if you look at verse 9 of the passage... Verse 9 of the passage, this is where the crowds are praising Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem. And they refer to Jesus with this name, Son of David. They say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, Son of David, this is a very specific term that every Jewish person would have understood. It meant much more than simply someone who came from David's royal line, although it did include that distinction. It was a specific reference to the messianic king that God promised that he would send through David, the one who would rule on David's throne with power and with might for all eternity, which was obviously a desperate hope for every Jew of that day living under Roman tyranny. They were desperate for the joy to be free from this 
Roman oppression. And it's a joy that God promised when he sent this Messiah King they would have. But if you look at the wider context of this passage, you'll notice in the previous chapter, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's on his way there. And there's two blind men on the side of the road. And they hear that Jesus is passing by. And when they hear that he's close by, they begin calling out to him, saying, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. See, they're using that term, Son of David. Now, we're told the crowds rebuked them, told them to to be quiet. But it's important to see, firstly, this was not simply a, a noise complaint. It was a theological complaint. Because, yeah, they're making a lot of noise, but in referring to Jesus as the son of David, they're giving him that messianic title. They're saying, yeah, he's that king. That's who you are. So the rebuke from people wasn't simply, hey, quiet down. It was, how dare you say such blasphemy about a mere man? Now, these two blind men, they're either convinced or desperate or both because they just completely ignore the rebuke of these people, and they call out and says even louder, They're like, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. But here's the part that I really want you to see most in this whole interaction. At the very moment when these guys are desperately calling out to Jesus, giving him this messianic king title, and everyone's rebuking him, telling him to shut up, don't, don't say that, you're way overstating your case now. Here, Jesus For the very first time ever in his public ministry, he hears someone refer to him as the Messiah, and he says, yes? Yes, that's right. What do you want me to do for you? Minds are blown. I mean, now, the rest of this passage, the rest of chapter 20, we just hear about the interaction between Jesus and these two blind men who he eventually Heals, but I'm saying the reason for that is because now nobody else is saying anything. They're just standing there like, sorry, what? He just said, yes, what do you want me to do for you? Now, why? Why is that such a big deal? Well, from a historical perspective, for these Jews, it's significant because someone here just publicly accepted that title of this long-awaited Messiah King. He said, yes, that's me. But from a chronological perspective, as far as Jesus' ministry, it's significant because up until now, throughout his entire public ministry, Jesus has shut down every such attempt to identify him as the Messiah King. Everyone who's tried to identify him publicly anyway as the Messiah, he's forbid it. Whether that's demons he's casting out, people he's healed, he said, I don't want you to say that to anyone. I don't want you to tell everyone about that. And now... Suddenly, as he makes his way towards Jerusalem, now suddenly it's different. Suddenly now he's okay with it. And I'm sure now everyone's baffled, including his disciples. They've got to be confused. They're like, well, wait a minute, you, you've told us all this time not to say that. And now well, there's two blind guys who are calling out, you're the Messiah, like it's loud enough for all the Middle East to heal, and, and now you're cool with it? I, I don't understand. Why, what changed? Well, what did change? Now you need to hear me. This, when Jesus is doing this, it's not what you might expect, right? This is not like, okay, Bruce Wayne, I'm sorry this is a spoiler alert to you, he's Batman, right? If he's going along, people are like, I think you're Batman, and Batman's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not as though like one day someone says, hey, Batman, and he goes, yeah, oh, shoot, 
Dang it, I didn't want to reveal that. It's not, Jesus hasn't slipped up here. Nor is Jesus being kind of coy and vague all through his life because he knows he's not really the Messiah. But now, you know what, people keep saying it. He's like, you know what, let's just roll with it. Let's just see what happens. That's not what's happening. No. Jesus had not gone public about his divine royalty, not at all because he wasn't the Messiah, but because he was. If you remember, even when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary telling her about the fact she's going to give birth to this baby, his exact words to her, we just read it this morning, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He is going to be that Son of David. And, I mean, just, just look at what happens. Look at the crowd that forms the minute he says, yeah, I'm the Messiah, bam, huge crowds. Nowhere else in Matthew's gospel does he use a term for such a huge crowd. They are there. The second they hear he's the Messiah, there's this huge victory parade. Everyone's celebrating. You probably don't need a calculator to figure out why Jesus would want to keep that under wraps until exactly the right time. You don't just toss that out for any occasion. He's waiting for a specific moment. Because the second he says he's the Messiah, people see it. Crowds, huge crowds forming. I mean, it reminds me of a story I heard years ago when we did that tour, you know, at Universal Studios in Hollywood. They take you around on those little trams and you get to see the different sets and stuff. They told us a story about this time they were going on a tour and somebody spotted Robert Redford walking from his set towards his trailer. They spotted him and recognized him and every single woman on those open-sided trailers, bam, vanished. Gone. Oh, his husband's boyfriends are like, oh, honey, what? They, they stormed him across the parking lot, chased him into a porta potty and apparently wouldn't let him out until he agreed to sign all their autographs. When, when you recognize celebrity of some kind, it forms a crowd quickly. And Jesus knew he had other work to do before this. So he's waiting until the right time. But now, I think what this shows us is now Jesus is saying, no, now it is the right time. Now is the time for me to reveal that I am, in fact, the son of David. And he reveals it's the right time. He thinks that now is the perfect time because as Jesus heads toward Jerusalem, he knows he's about to die. He's about to give his life here. He will not leave Jerusalem. And now, Jesus wants as many people as possible to know that the man that they're going to see hung on a Roman cross a week from now is not some uh, crazy, misguided martyr. He's not some rabble-rousing rabbi. He is the Messiah. That's who you're going to see hanging up on that Roman cross. Or at least that's who he claimed to be. You'll know at least that much. Everyone said that guy was the Messiah. Why would he want them to know that? Well, because you see, Jesus, all through his earthly ministry, and even now, has been mounting a case of evidence. A case of evidence about himself as he heads toward his impending death with the expressed intent of eliciting a response from us. Eliciting a response to the question that he asked to his disciples just a few chapters earlier. There was an interaction where Jesus said, Hey, who are people? what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And they give him some responses. And then he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? You've seen all that I've shown you. You've seen what I've done and said, who do you say that I am? 
What I'm saying is Jesus' intent is to elicit the response to that question from all of us, from all who will interact. And yeah, no, I'm not saying that everyone is going to answer the same way. No, some are going to say, who do, you, who do I say that you are? I think you're crazy. I think you're a fake. I think uh, you're just some guy who said some nice stuff, like a Gandhi or whatever. That's, that, that's absolutely, I mean, the religious leaders are going to hear Jesus the, the saying son of David to him, and they're going to be furious. They're not happy about it. But there's a response, do you see? And I believe that's Jesus' intent. He's revealing his divine royalty in order to elicit some response to the question, who do you say that I am? Who am I? And now as we look at the signs Jesus provided to back up his royal revelation, he's only going to press that question on us even harder. So let's look now at these signs of royalty. Signs of royalty. Now, for the religious rulers of Jesus' day and others who doubted him, they were often asking for signs from him. They're like, dude, do something. Perform a sign that will prove that you have the authority to do and say all this stuff you're doing and saying. And as Jesus himself said, the greatest sign Jesus ever performed to prove that he truly was God's son, he truly was this coming king, was raising himself from the dead. His resurrection, this sign of Jonah, as he called it, which was simply referring to the story, Old Testament, of Jonah, swallowed by the whale and then, let's just say, resurfacing uh, on the third day. That's the sign he said that he would give that I truly am the Messiah. But as it relates to Jesus' public acceptance of this messianic title, Son of David, Matthew points out some key signs some key pieces of Old Testament evidence. In fact, all through Matthew's gospel, he does this. He takes pieces from the Old Testament, prophecies about Jesus, and then he brings them out in his gospel, and he says, see, look, that's Jesus. That's him doing it. And he does it here as well, particularly as Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and the fulfillment, the conclusion of the purpose for which he came. And the first sign of his royalty is the way he chose to enter into Jerusalem, namely, riding on this donkey colt. If you look at verses 1 through 3 of our passage in Matthew 21, you see there's this whole exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Two of them, he's sending them on ahead to go and retrieve this donkey and her colt. Now, there's a lot I'd already want to say about these verses, but suffice it to say for now, Jesus, the reason he's sending them ahead to do this for him is because he can't do this anymore. Because of what just happened yesterday with this healing of these guys and accepting the title of Messiah, he's got a level of celebrity now. He can't. He can't just head up into Jerusalem and get these animals. Jesus can't just walk down to the corner store and get milk and bread anymore. He's going to get mobbed, both by his fans and by his enemies. So, verses 6 to 7, they tell us, yes, they go, they get the colt and the donkey, they bring it back, and Jesus rides this colt beside its mother, into Jerusalem for this triumphal entry. But what Matthew points out very clearly in verse 4, look there, is that Jesus wasn't just tired of walking. He's not just tired of walking and he wants, this is like the first century equivalent of Uber or something, and he's like, yeah, go pick me up. A, no, he's, he's doing this for a specific reason. Look what he says. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So Jesus chose this exact form of transportation into Jerusalem to make a point. He's, he's trying to show, I am fulfilling a specific messianic prophecy, which then he quotes in verse 5. It comes out of Zechariah chapter 9. Listen. He says, the prophecy says, Say to the daughter of Zion, this is the people of Israel, 
See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, it's not clear why at first, but when Matthew quotes this prophecy from Zechariah 9 and verse 9, he quotes it almost verbatim except for one key line that he keeps out. The prophecy in Zechariah 9 says, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, and then gentle and riding on a donkey, and so forth and so on. So he leaves out that line, and without getting into this rabbit trail of how New Testament authors quote Old Testament authors, let's just say at this point in time, what Matthew is primarily trying to point out is, hey, listen, this is how it was prophesied that this king would come, how he would arrive humble and riding on a donkey's colt. Now look. Here's Jesus doing it, coming exactly as the prophecy foretold. The ultimate king over all coming just as it was spoken of him. The next sign he points to is the shouts of the massive crowd. In front and behind as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, the actions of the crowd, they're laying down their cloaks, laying down these palm branches. Uh, This is what you'll see every Palm Sunday in churches, kids running around with palm branches. This is where this comes from. They're laying down these things on the road already that has royal significance. Because you see, that's how kings were celebrated and welcomed when they came into a city. After a victorious battle or something like that, they'd be welcomed in and they would cover the road for the the animal to walk over. So already this has royal significance. But it's also important to see that the words Matthew records the crowd saying, the words they're calling out are not just simply a, a a record of what they said but they're prophecies that they're quoting. They are quoting prophecies from the Old Testament, specifically from Psalm 118, as they praise the Son of David entering into Jerusalem. Listen to the words from the psalm itself. Psalm 118, here, starting at verse 19. The psalmist writes this, Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks to you, for you answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Now, a few things quickly to point out. Verse 9 there, in our quote here, talks about the people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. That word, Hosanna, means, Lord, save. It means, save us. <coughs> Which is exactly... What verse 25 here of the psalm says, (coughs) Lord, save us. They're calling out the exact same thing, which means, and this is incredible to think of, this entire crowd now has taken up the loud cry of those two blind men, and they're applying it to themselves. They're saying, hey, hey, save us too. Apply that same salvation to us, Jesus. We want to be saved. The celebration, the, the waving of palm branches, that we saw in in verse 8 of our passage, mirrors exactly this bows in hand. Verse 27, with bows in hand, join the festal procession. That's what they're doing. 
And finally, of course, the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He who comes as God's representative with all the power and authority of the Lord. You who comes as his representative, blessed is he. Point is, these crowds are not simply just shouting out random praises to Jesus as he comes in Jerusalem. They're quoting from this messianic psalm and pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies. They're saying he is that ultimate king. He is the son of David. And again, we see it. It causes all kinds of different responses. It causes some to be incredibly excited and causes some to be incredibly angry. But maybe you noticed, maybe you picked up and caught the fact that we didn't address some things. We didn't talk about two specific questions that maybe you had from these signs that Matthew brings up of Jesus' royalty. First of all, why a donkey? Why, why is that even the prophecy? Who, who does that? And secondly, why does Matthew omit that line, righteous and having salvation or having victory? Why does he omit that when he quotes Zechariah's prophecy? Well, both of those questions have to do, I'm saying, with the kind of king Jesus was, with the kind of salvation that Jesus came to bring at his first coming. And I think addressing those questions is going to give us some application for this second point. First of all, as to the question of why Jesus would choose a donkey's colt to ride on his kingly entry into Jerusalem as opposed to a horse, a chariot, aside from just fulfilling this specific prophecy from Zechariah, it's actually not as strange as you might think to have a king ride in on a donkey. In fact, in David's own rule, when he presented his son Solomon to be king, he had him do just this. His son Solomon rode on his royal mule to Gihon, where Zadok the priest anointed him as king over Israel. And having Solomon ride on that mule had specific significance to the kind of rule that Solomon would have. Namely, his kingdom would be a kingdom of peace and not of war, as David's was. So too with Jesus. The choice of his animal to enter Jerusalem had great significance as to the kind of king and the kind of kingdom that he came to bring, namely one of peace, not of conquest, not of war. For this time, Jesus was coming not as the conquering king, but as the humble servant king, as the one who came to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in that, I think we have the answer to why Matthew would omit or take out that that phrase, righteous and having salvation, from the Zechariah quotation. For while he does want to highlight, yes, Jesus is the king, and Jesus certainly has come to bring salvation, Matthew knows all too well this was not the kind of king or the kind of salvation that Israel was hoping for right now. It's not what they had in mind. Israel's hope for a king and salvation was based entirely, I believe, on their misunderstanding that the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this son of David, would actually come in two different times. There would be two different comings. So they were focused on all the prophecies that talked about the second coming, when he would come with power and might and conquest and, and freedom and bringing about all these things. That's what they were focusing on. And it's one of the reasons I'm saying it brought such hope. It drew such a crowd. One of the reasons they were celebrating so excitedly because they're daily facing this subjugation, this oppression from the Romans. And now they think this long-awaited conquering Messiah King has come and they are joyful. This is truly joy has come. Yes, 
They're like thinking, ha ha, Caesar. What's up now, man? Our, our king is here, and now you're going to see what's going to happen. It's not going to be the same. You're going to have to find another line of work. Jerusalem is coming back. We're getting all this back to ourselves. That's what they're thinking. That's why their celebration is so huge and why they're unashamedly celebrating Jesus as the king, even though they're living in Roman-occupied Jerusalem. They're like, no, no, the, the Messiah is here. It's okay. What they forgot or ignored or maybe just failed to realize was that there were also prophecies that spoke of this coming Messiah as the suffering servant, as the Lamb of God who would give his life to redeem the lost world, which I think also shows why so many in that same crowd would have changed their tune in only a week. And instead of crying Hosanna, we're now crying crucify him. He's not the king we were expecting. And the truth is it can be just the same for us today. When it comes to how we respond to Jesus' question, how we receive Jesus as our king, it's possible to have all kinds of ideas and expectations about that relationship that unfortunately have no basis in God's word or who God revealed himself to be in sending Jesus. Those ideas could be our own. They could be something that someone told to us at some point in our life. But regardless, they can lead to, to a crushing disappointment in our lives. And as we saw with this massive crowd, they can lead to an ultimate rejection of Jesus when it turns out he hasn't come to be the kind of king or bring the kind of salvation that we were hoping for. So maybe you're here this morning, you'd say that you, you have received Jesus as your king at some point. But maybe you believed or you still believe to some level that receiving Jesus as your king means, okay, I'm not going to struggle financially anymore. I'm not going to struggle in my marriage. I'm not going to struggle in my relationships. I've received Jesus as the king. Or maybe you thought receiving Jesus as the king meant, okay, I'm not going to have to suffer under that addiction anymore. I'm not going to get a, a cancer diagnosis anymore. I've received Jesus as my king. I'm not going to have to say goodbye to loved ones anymore. And when those hopes are shattered because... That's not the kind of king Jesus has come to be. He hasn't come to be our genie answer man. When those hopes are shattered, so too can be our receiving of Jesus. And honestly, for every story I've ever heard of someone who has said, I, I've heard about Jesus, I've heard about Christianity, and they say they reject Jesus as their king, almost invariably there's a story of disappointed hopes and expectations attached to it about how they tried Christianity and didn't work for them. I love uh, pastor and author uh, Tim Keller, his response to such rejections of Jesus. He, he says, hey, describe for me the God that you reject. Tell me about the Jesus you say you don't believe in. I might not believe in him either. Because the Jesus or the Christianity you may have rejected may not actually even be Jesus. It may just be your own idea of him. <laughs> it simply means this. Receiving the king. Receiving Jesus as the king means receiving him as he truly is. As he's revealed himself to be not as we might hope he is. Because a Jesus of your own design, it might seem really appealing in the moment. Yeah, he's going to give me this. I'm going to get a bike for Christmas. Whatever it is. But that Jesus can't save you, and he can never truly bring you joy. 
Only the Jesus of the Bible, as he's revealed himself, can do that. But the call of God's word, the call of uh, the carol that we're talking about, joy to the world, again, still are calling us to receive him. They're calling us to say, here is Jesus, receive him. And it's calling us to make a decision. It's calling each and every person, every single one of us here today, to answer that question that Jesus asked to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus has presented all this evidence of who he is. He's claimed this is who he is. And now he's saying, who, who do you say that I am? Who is the one performing all those miracles? Who is that baby lying in a manger? Who is he? Who is that man you see dying on a cross? Who do you say that I am? Everything, everything you see in the four Gospels, from the initiation of God's rescue plan and Jesus coming as a baby to its culmination in his death and resurrection is about forcing the question on all who encounter Jesus. He is making the nations to prove either the wonders of his love in in graciously redeeming all who will receive him as a king or the glories of his righteousness in carrying out his perfect justice against all who would reject him as king. It's the message of Christmas. God presenting Jesus as the king, saying, here here is the king, here is the son of David. And now in hearing this message this morning that we've just read, he's presenting himself again. God, through his word now to us this morning, saying, here is the king, here is this son of David. Now, today, humbly, riding into your life on a donkey's colt. The humble king is coming before you with this evidence of who he is. But although he's humble, he's absolutely humble. He's not subtle. Jesus is not subtle. And as we said, neither were the words of this carol. They're not subtle. And if you think about it, even though he doesn't come as you'd expect, neither is Jesus' triumphal entry. There's nothing subtle about it. His hour had come, and now he is pulling back that curtain to reveal his royalty, to reveal his greatness, which requires a response of some kind from us. We have to decide. So what about you? What's your response to Jesus' question? Who do you say that I am? Will you receive Jesus as he is? Will you crown him your king and submit to his loving rule over your life? Or will you reject him as king and seek a savior of your own design? As we've said, only in receiving Jesus as he is can we truly receive the joy that he came to bring, both in this life and in the life to come. But the one thing he will not allow us to do is to leave the question unanswered. For as C.S. Lewis so masterfully wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, and I close with this, he said, you must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet as Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Here is the king before us. Who do you say that he is? May every heart prepare him room.